I feel like Talladega Nights. Like I don't know what to do with my hands. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is Liam doing? <laughs> <laughs> Just like this. This is what I was going to the Russell Brand thing. Yes. You go like this you the whole time. their attention. Yeah. I know you six million awakening wonders. <laughs> They're all in each other's shots. Cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> jazz hands. <laughs> One, two, three, jazz hands. Uh, is our focus good after that, uh, yeah, after after that performance? It all up. <laughs> I don't know. You get what you deserve. Whole <laughs> <laughs> show's out of focus. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on news, politics, and culture, where it's always our mission to arm you with the tools that you need to cut through media misdirection and resist the mononarrative. We've got a very special show today. David, what are we talking about? It is a special show. It's the Thanksgiving special, where we're going to be recording at night, drinking substances and, and vibing and uh, having a great time with our guests. Uh, we have uh, some interesting stories too. El Loco wins Argentina as well as developments with OpenAI and X and what Elon Musk is doing to Media Matters. And while you're here, please like, comment, subscribe to whatever, wherever you are, whether it be YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, whatever. And uh, we also cover a lot of topics. So use the chapter marks down below and jump to whatever subject you're interested in the most. And also join our Discord where we have a community that's starting to form in there. And for those of you that didn't know how to join the Discord, the first round of Carrier Pigeons did go out, so you should be receiving those any day, <laughs> assuming the weather doesn't get too cold. Should give a nice tutorial on how to create a Discord and enter a channel, <laughs> you know. Or Someday. Falcons. It's the weather or Falcons. There's a lot of things that get a pigeon. We could, yeah, we could, we could upgrade to Falcons. If, if, we, uh, if we get some good sponsorships for this coming year, carrier. we could probably afford to upgrade to Carrier Falcons. Carrier Falcons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got a very special guest joining us in the studio today. Uh, Liam McCollum, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming and uh, the, the studio is awesome. I'm, I'm very proud of you guys. I honestly think this is my favorite podcast to listen to right now. I, I believe you guys deserve hundreds more followers than you have. Um, and I, I believe you guys are going to soar here soon. And I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Why don't we start off by getting to know you a little bit? I mean, we all know you fairly well, but for our listeners who may not, other than the biggest celebrity that we've ever had on the show to date, <laughs> who are you, sir? Yeah, I, I'm Lee McCollum. I, I host my own podcast, Lee McCollum Show. Uh, started at my sophomore year of college about three, four years ago. Um, actually out of the journalism department there, I was a uh, minoring in journalism and I started to interview guests on the Washington Post or from the Washington Post and the New York Times. And then uh, started out more objective because I was hiding my personal beliefs. And then I was like, I'll just shoot for it and start interviewing people like Scott Horton. And um, I realized when, when I could tag people like Scott on Twitter, um, his followers then started seeing my clips and kind of took advantage of that. And then uh, got, affiliated with the Mises Caucus and the Montana Libertarian Party here. Um, I help with social media um, through the Montana Libertarian Party. I'm also a region organizer, so very focused on local politics and still continuing my podcast while going to school. That's awesome. How did you just connect with people from the Washington Post? Did you just reach out to them? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was able to use the fact that I was a student at the University of Montana. Um, the journalism department was was ranked and i i think a, a lot of them just wanted to talk to younger people um but then of course as i started to interview people like scott horton and and more libertarian voices i i started to get rejected by those guys <laughs> um but then i i just decided i should lean into it um I, I was getting some some pretty big guests like uh most recently i had 
uh, Peter St. Ange, who blew up on Twitter. He's become pretty big economist on Twitter. Um, and I, I actually interviewed him right before he, he blew up. Um, so I just was taking advantage of that and, and trying to connect with people on Twitter. How many hours have you spent growing your Twitter following? Be honest. <laughs> that is a very good question. I am, I am addicted to Twitter. I, I try to manage that. And I think I have some skills that I've learned, especially during, during law school. It's, it's been something that I need to, uh, have better control over, but, um, I don't know. My, my girlfriend constantly looks at my, uh, time on my phone and compares cause she's addicted to TikTok and I'm addicted to Twitter. Um, <laughs> So yeah, we, we give each other credit. Yeah, but I mean, like, is it really an addiction if you're like, you're like growing a, like an impressive follower? I, I, I was, I remember I was following you back when you had like hundreds of followers and now you're at what now 16,000 um, pretty quickly. And it, it's just been impressive to see how quickly you've managed to be able to grow this following and also just like how much attention your Twitter ends up getting, like the amount of retweets from like very high up people like i remember you getting you know like millions of views on something because like donald trump jr retweeted you and you got like jack posobic you're fighting with sometimes yeah <laughs> like, right. yeah that's, that's the justification i tell to my girlfriend but uh <laughs> yeah no i i just Building got retweeted by glenn greenwald yeah but honestly I, I think it's a little dirty the way that i've been able to uh blow up on twitter i i I call it digital arbitrage. It's seeing the price <laughs> differential between like YouTube and, and Twitter. Obviously like uh, on Twitter or YouTube, if you go and you look up the Giuliani moment, no one, I mean, I mean, it's blown up like millions of uh, views. But if you look it up on Twitter, there was nothing. So I was like, I was highly influenced by this video when I was getting into these ideas. Why not clip it and share it with everyone? Um, and it's things like that, that, that really help. Amplify that is me. interesting. Cause oftentimes, even when we're just like preparing for the show, I I'm like, Oh, I need a clip for something. And I'm just like, I'm sure Liam's tweeted. About <laughs> <it."> <laughs> so like, I just scan through your, uh, through your account for it. And it's usually there. You've gone from interviewing sources to being the source. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> congratulations. So law school, what's it like? It's crazy. It's not what I expected. I, I honestly, cause I'm, I have a philosophy background. I um, got my degree in, in philosophy and I expected it to be more theoretical. Um, I'm glad that it's not, but I expected it to be like a lot of debating with fellow students and it's just the law. I mean, and I'm very thankful for that. Like we're learning a lot. I'm reading at least three cases per class each night. Um, and I'm definitely learning the skills around it. I, I, I can tell that it's changing the way that I think. Um, you know, it, it, it used to be like pulling teeth to sit down and read a long form thing. Now it's like, okay, yeah, I do this every day. Mm. So um, I, I really enjoy it. And, and honestly, even though my professors obviously don't share the same beliefs as me, same as undergrad, I, I, I'm actually pretty thankful with how they've been approaching the subjects. And maybe that'll change, but... Um, it's, it's been good. They've been demonstrating tolerance. Like yeah. when you write about from your perspective, they're very much open to hearing that. Well, we haven't really had anything like that. We haven't really had any, um, contentious debates yet. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, I, I'm learning a lot of like civil procedure right now. So okay. it's, it's pretty dry. Mm. Um, I'm assuming like third year law might be completely different. Cool. And so what was the light bulb moment? Like why get into doing politics, journalism, philosophy, law? Like what was the directional change to set your life in that orientation? Well, it, it happened in high school for sure. Um, I was slacking off a lot. I, at, at one point in high school, I had a 1.0, uh, over 150 tardies. And oh, um, yeah, it was, I w at the same time I was listening to, ironically, like people like Ben Shapiro, Steven Crowder, and 
um, those are the people that I looked up to and they were just like, you got to like, uh, like they were saying like personal responsibility. I was listening to Jordan Peterson as well. Um, and then I took a honor civics class with representative Lee Deming. Um, he's currently a representative of the Montana legislature. Um, and I was just blown away by it. I, I was in, instantly captivated, started getting A's in all of his classes on all of, all of the exams. Um, and he introduced me to Ron Paul, uh, Tom Woods, and it was just a spiral from there. I mean, and I had, I had discovered people like Eric July um, before that, and he was a big influence on me, but it, it was that class that really uh, connected the dots. Hmm. Very cool. Are there, is there anybody else like you in the law school in terms of the political orientation, or are you sort of a lone man out there in the libertarian world? I haven't really branched out. I have met people at the University of Montana who are libertarian. Um, I met one other guy who is uh, conservative, and I identify with conservatives more. I, I just get along with them more than, than leftists. So uh, that's been pretty nice. Um, he's also pretty conspiratorial, and that's fun to have some conversations <laughs> with those, him. Those are the best <laughs> friends. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I mean, he's worried about CBDC, stuff like that. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming there's more, hmm. but I haven't met them yet. And I want to know, like, so you're, you got this Twitter following. You're obviously much younger than me, and you're a little bit younger than Kyle, and younger than Joe Biden quite a bit too. So well, being I'm not as, nearly as old as David. Though, I know, that's clear. true. I am the old man <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, as the Zoomer, how do we reach these kids? Like, what's the, uh, what's the, like, what, what are your thoughts on kind of like the political culture of your generation? It's an interesting question. I, I think it would definitely be taking advantage of the moment that we're in, um, the, the media moment we're in. Uh, and I think this might actually be a good pivot to the Malay conversation as well. It's just taking advantage of, populism libertarian populism mm. in the rothbardian sense he he also in the 90s um was suggesting that we needed a, a bombastic leader similar to malay and um I, I think i think doing what you guys are doing in in long-form podcasts i, I think that's the way that we're going to reach uh future generations i you know cable news is dying um i think that's why that uh tucker carlson leaving was a very good thing um overall for the conservative movement, the liberty movement. Um, I just think long form conversations and, and taking advantage of media, clipping them and posting them on TikTok, um, clipping them and posting them on Twitter is, is absolutely the path forward. Mm. That seems to be the interesting component to me to reaching young people because it, I mean, you hear the trope all the time, like we have shorter and shorter attention spans because of social media. Do you think long form is really resonating with young people? Is that where they're, they're consuming their news like specifically? I mean, not all of them. I, I, I get caught in the trap, the dopamine trap of just scrolling on TikTok and Instagram, but I try to avoid it. And I think that there is a large enough population out there that just wants long form um, content in general. Uh, I've, I've definitely like tried to have healthier social media practices. I, I know Adam Thune was asking a question about that. <laughs> um, and part of that is just trying to, to intentionally approach media and and try to learn from it rather than just like doom scrolling mm -hmm. um like like i i don't use instagram very more or very much anymore because uh you know it's just like meme after meme after meme mm -hmm. uh girl in bikini next like <laughs> and it's just dopamine hit after dopamine hit and i think what that kind of encourages is short-term thinking like you suggested and and i would i would encourage people to uh like intentionally approach youtube uh intentionally pro approach podcasts and uh, use media to learn rather than to get a fix. Yeah. 
I think I think the the dynamic is the is the dynamic that we experience as advertisers on these platforms, right? Is that the short form is the advertisement for the long form. And that like your true fans listen to your long form content and they like support your short form content, use the short term content on the for you page and then like the viral moments to get your audience. And that, I think it's kind of like that's the the organic way it's kind of built out. Uh, when I look at all the successful podcasts that have come up in the last couple of years, it's either I heard about them through a friend or I found their short form content first and then branched into their actual long form. Yeah, that, that's another way that I help build my following on Twitter is I, I would take clips of my interviews with Scott Horton and then he'd retweet it and then there'd be you know hundreds of people retweeting it after that. Mm. So I, I think you're absolutely right. If you use the short-term content as advertisement and then you direct people to the long-form content, that's, that's how we need to be using social media. Speaking of which, if you're on X, please follow us. We just broke a couple hundred, a hundred? I think we just broke 100. Yeah, yeah. broke 100 followers. We're, you got us by 16 times. <laughs> but yeah, we uh, it's pretty new and we're just trying to start to get our... times. It's fine. Math is trying not to, It's our philosophy major. <laughs> true, uh, true. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Jeez, you totally threw me off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we do have a lot of our short clips on there now too. So we're trying to get out there in the Twitter game. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. Milai? Milai? What the hell's his name? Milai? I, I was going to say Milai. Milai. That's what I said. God, that's, that's the massacre. Javier I'm talking about the Milai. Vietnam massacre. Javier Milai. Yeah, not the Melee massacre. Yeah. massacre. That's a very different, that's a different thing. thing. <laughs> Darker subject. This is a happy subject because it's a Thanksgiving special. So tell me about it. Who, who the hell is this guy? What's his, what's his background? So what's his story? Milai is this... So his nickname growing up was El Loco, which means the madman, which Loco. I think really paints a picture of who this guy really is. And I'm sure most people have seen like this crazy, this crazy man screaming about the central banking in Argentina. Right. But, you know, he was a, a goalie in junior football. He's the singer for a ACDC cover band. He's an Austrian libertarian economist. Um, the, the, the Economist, the publication labels him as a, uh, a sex guru, a cosplayer <laughs> and an economist and an economist. <laughs> Clearly the coolest economist at the economist has ever come uh, apparently has cloned his dogs and named him after a bunch of austrian economists you know like like this is a very eccentric oh, fellow yeah it, 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 the eccentricness really comes together when you see captain and cap that's really what guy was like oh this guy <laughs> this guy knows how to market so he's he went, he's he went going to all a, in he went to a comic convention right and he dressed up as as was it general i think it was general and cap or captain ANCAP, yeah something, something like, like that. that yeah in a black and yellow yeah, like, bodysuit and his he was telling the kids yeah, that his amazing. mission was to was to kick Keynesians in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so someone explain this costume to to people who can't see it, and uh, it also might explain Ancap. So I'd call it a mix between um, 
an economist, Batman, and Superman. And Aquaman. <laughs> and Aquaman. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we explained anarcho- anarcho-capitalism the last time we talked about Melee when he had won his primary. Yeah. But uh, just a brief refresher. It's kind of um, a tradition based out of uh, Austrian economics. Um, people like uh, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard, Lysander Spooner, that kind of like those types of economists, if you know who they are. Um, and it's essentially kind of um, limiting government as much as possible, if not entirely, with a primary focus on things like property rights. Yeah. I, th- I think the best way to understand it is like conservatives and limited, limited government people in general believe in the free market, or at least they say they do. Um, ANCAPs believe in the free market, but also apply to like security services. So like if you believe in the free market um, in healthcare, you, you don't believe in Obamacare, you think the free market's best. Uh, ANCAPs would say, well, competition, if applied also to security services, competition applied to government and governance in general um, will lead to better outcomes. Right. Uh, and to explain it, the, he's wearing a black and yellow uh, cape and, and bodysuit here. Uh, the yellow represents gold, right? Which is about the market, right? And black and traditionally in flags, flag iconography is for anarchism. So it's it, it's like a market-based anarchism or an individualist anarchism. That's the anarcho-capitalist. That's, that's where the word comes from. So that's that, why it's all black and yellow. Is that why the pirate flag is black? Yeah. Because they're anarchist? <laughs> they're without state. The Jolly Roger, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 they're stateless. I love that. Didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, there's a great book about explaining economics using pirates. So the how, invisible hook, you've got to check it out. It's I, wonderful. You've awesome. never heard of it before. I have not. The oh, it's hook. so great. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing book to explain it to somebody who doesn't really understand. Oh, how. I was thinking Thaddeus Russell's renegades history where he talks oh. about pirates. Yeah. But I, I'm not, that's I'm mostly not. about them just being gay. Pirates are super gay. That's like the whole point. of pirates. <laughs> so is it like it's pro pirate though? It's not saying that they were a bunch of criminals. Well, it, well, no, it's it's more the invisible hook is more about how uh, rules and order can s- uh, spontaneously order themselves, right? You don't need an authority, a centralized authority to get rules and order. That's the idea. And in, in, in institutions that you wouldn't expect, like when two pirate ships meet at sea, what's the rules of conduct? Well, those evolve spontaneously without any state. Uh, the rules when it comes to profit sharing on the ships was a market-based rule, right? Some ships were equal share, some ships were less so, but they all tended to be more, way more egalitarian than the mercantiles and than the Navy and things like that, right? So the uh, it's a very interesting case study of how pirates are like a way to think about how rules can spontaneously organize. Hmm. So, yeah. okay, so just to set the stage here, because uh, this is a very interesting environment in which to paint a guy who was just elected president of a country. Mm. Uh, what is the environment that established the need or the precedent for the, the need for a guy with these kind of views? All right. So this is the peso of Argentina, their, their um, money supply, right? This is the expansion of their money supply. So repeatedly, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, we've talked about the Austrian theory of the business cycle and the phenomena of the expansion of money as a way as the fundamental driver of an increase in the price level, the general price level of goods and services in the economy. So if you go to the there, there's also in the comments there mm-hmm. or not in the comments right below there. This is the inflation rate in Argentina. Notice they're going through 120 something percent inflation that shows the environment in which they elected a guy who ran on eliminating their central bank. Because they've inflated away the value of their currency. Now, his solution to that's interesting, right? Because the solution to that is dollarization. 
which basically means replacing the peso with the dollar um, and then hopefully getting rid of their central bank. So obviously 120% inflation is incredibly painful for people. And that caused obviously a ton of people to support him in, in like this populist movement. Can we explain what that is populism in general? What is populism? Populism is often just kind of like a nonsense word that people use to <laughs> criticize things. <laughs> it's um, all deconstructing as usual words. Uh, populism, I mean, largely just kind of means like it's like of the people. So it's like a usually like an uprising of the people. But it's it's often painted in various different lights uh, because people are like like and I see this a lot in kind of right wing circles and, and, uh, and, um, libertarian circles. Often there's certain wings of those camps that will kind of just like criticize populism just for the sake of being populism. Yeah. So the best way to think about populism, in my opinion, is where do your ideas for politics come from? Do they come from a centralizing philosophy such as in this case, anarcho-capitalism, in which case he would not be a populist, right? Cause his ideas come from his philosophy of politics of the state being evil of central banking being bad of all these different things, right? Populists would say the people of Virginia are for silver. So I am for silver. Hmm. That's actually a famous quote. And what basically what it means is the, I get my political views from representing this group of people who I, I am a champion of that's populism. That, that's the truest form of populism. That's probably the, like the best way to put it. If you look at what is the difference between a Democrat in the classical sense, like a lowercase d, like I value democracy Democrat and a populist, there really isn't that much, right? In, in the case of like, I believe in the enfranchisement of people to vote, to have a voice heard in their politics, as opposed to that's just an inversion of that, which I believe I should be the person to represent those people. That's all populism is. I'm curious. Uh, if a uh, representative, a populist representative derives their, their power from representing the people, does that imply a necessary lack of inherent ideology or principle upon which they stand? They're just kind of a, a, a you know, a windsock, if you will, for whatever public opinion says. I, I, there's, there's always been a leadership criticism of populism in that sense, right? Uh, on the other side of it, what's the job of a representative to represent? So it, there's always been like this different model. And we talk about in political science of like the representative model versus like the leadership model. Leadership model says you're a conservative and you just happen to be a Republican. The other one says I'm a member of the Republican Party and, and they elected me to be Republican. So I'm going to be the Republican that the Republicans expect me to be. Versus, does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, an, another way that populism is generally used is just it's used to be put on a spectrum of like populism versus elitism. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, especially in like more recent culture, in political culture, you'll end up seeing like Bernie Sanders gets labeled as a populist. Ron Paul gets labeled as a populist. Trump gets labeled as a populist because it's very much like going against the establishment. Um, I'm not really sure that's really supposed to be the correct terminology, but it is how it is used in public yeah, parlance. I, I, I wouldn't say that's the technical definition, mm -hmm. but I, th I think that's the way that, that it's been used when, when I said it. I said it earlier in the podcast, mm -hmm. the, the Rothbardian populist sense. And I actually have a quote here, if you guys don't mind, from, from Rothbard, where he talks about the, the populist libertarian strategy. Because uh, he, he's comparing it with the Fabian strategy of like the Cato types that are, that are trying to infiltrate, get and think, think tanks and try to infiltrate government. He says that instead we need a this libertarian or right wing populism. He says it needs to be exciting, dynamic, tough, and confrontational, rousing, and inspiring not only 
the exploited masses, but the often shell-shocked right-wing intellectual cadre as well. And in this era, where the intellectual and media elites are all establishment liberal conservatives, all in a deep sense, one variety or another of social democrat, all bitterly hostile to a genuine right, we need a dynamic, dynamic, charismatic leader who has the ability to short-circuit the media elites and to reach and rouse the masses directly. We need a leadership that can reach the masses and cut through the crippling and distorting hermeneutical fog spread by the media elites. And I think that describes Malay perfectly. Right. Yeah. As far as like you're making a case that is particularly critical of the establishment, that's the sense in which uh, think like Andrew Jackson would be a populist yeah. before populism was a real thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And the sense <clears> that his general appeal wasn't to the elite New York banker. It was to the everyday farmer that was struggling under inflationism with the second bank of the United States. Yeah. Gotcha. So this is much more oriented towards sort of that latter, that latter uh, definition because obviously he does stand on a lot of principal things, anarcho-capitalist, you know, ideals, libertarian ideals. Liam, do you want to like kind of run us down? Like what, what is it that this guy stands for uh, and kind of why this is so important for the country of Argentina? Yeah, I don't think we can really understate how amazing this is. I mean, just think about <laughs> it. Like, like we are all libertarians, anarcho-capitalists. We are all like obsessed with Murray Rothbard and a country just elected a man who quotes Murray Rothbard, who quotes Ludwig von Mises, who and quotes Hayek. Friedrich Hayek, yeah. who quotes Lysander Spooner. I found a clip of him holding up Vices Are Not Crimes. That was one of the most influential books for me in high school. And I think it's just so exciting because I'm kind of reliving like me coming to libertarianism through him because so many others are mm. like, like Ben Shapiro and a bunch of Republicans in Montana politics were, were sharing videos of Malay and they're kind of doing it to own the libs, right? They're not really paying attention to like the substance of what he's talking about, but like it is exciting because I think it presents an opportunity for us in the media sphere to take advantage of that, to, to sit the Republican down and say, why is this so exciting? What is he saying about the central bank of, of Argentina? And what does that mean about the Federal Reserve? Um, I think the most important thing that, that he's talking about is, is Austrian economics. He is an Austrian economist. You can look him up on YouTube where he's actually presenting written papers on Austrian economics to university students. Um, he's written he's written essays um, on Austrian economics directed toward English uh, readers as well. Um, th- this guy is a follower of, you know, our the people that we look up to, and there are a lot of people out there criticizing him and saying, "Oh, well, like we should be cautious." And I do I do believe that. I don't think we should put the cart before the horse. I think we should watch. Uh, and see what he does. But, and, and of course we shouldn't put faith in one man, but I think the most exciting thing is that the ideas are larger than the man himself and, and someone who is representing our ideas just won and become the le- became a leader of a country. And that's extremely exciting. Right. I mean, like think about it. They have out of the last 20 years, 16 have been dominated by the socialists in Argentina and they've had 40 years to really take the country and drag it into a hellhole of 120% inflation. Like America's Americans are freaking out about 6% on, on inflation. 120 is a nightmare, especially if you're young, especially if you're just starting out. So his ability to organize the youth, not in a direction of I'm going to give you stuff. It's that I'm going to, I'm going to cut things worse than the IMF will to restrain this madness. 
and to pull back this inflation rate and do something about it. Additionally, that I'm not just going to start. I'm not just going to do that and then forget about spending. I'm going to tax spending. And that's why we got this really great video of him doing this. Now, is this does this have this audio over in English or do I have to read it? Um, we'll, we'll read it. It's, it's just him. It's him at a whiteboard basically saying all the things that he's going right. to cut. So yeah, it's yeah. pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But are you going to read but it? In this, this definitely accent? shows, uh, this shows the dynamic of like how high energy he is too. And yeah. I think why he's so captivating. Right. Um, so he's a ministry of culture, ministry of the environment and sustainable development. It's out ministry of women, genders and diversity out. Ministry of Public Works out. Even if you resist. Science and technology. Ministry of Labor, Employment. Ministry of Education. Indoctrination, he says. Ministry of Transport. Ministry of Health. Ministry of Social Development. The thievery of politics is over. Long live damn liberty. <laughs> oh man. And he's got the, the, the cool glasses on. That's all. That's so awesome. Well, and you know, there, there's other things too. Like, like there's been tons of viral clips from him. It, like, unfortunately so much of it is in Spanish, obviously. So it's not exactly the greatest for audio listeners, but, uh, no, like th there'll be him talking with journalists, just like using kind of internet slang and calling people libtards and things like that. Like it's pretty, um, you know, it's, it's very exciting. It's very appealing. I think to the people that are feeling distraught by everything that's happening in Argentina. Right. Well, and it's confrontational and it's pointing at the, at the bad actors and it's pointing out the people and he's, and he's not doing it in like a, Oh, shucks. I'm sorry, but you messed up. He's like, no, I'm holding you accountable. Cause you said this would bring prosperity and it failed and yeah. it's failed for 30 years and we need to change the direction. And he's doing it with the kind of spice that actually works in the internet age. That's, that's the other part of it. Like he's really willing to point out the bad guys. I, I think the point that you brought up earlier that, that Americans are freaking out over 6% inflation, like is a, is a huge one because I, I tweeted something and it blew up. I, I said, we finally have a leader of a country who is pro Bitcoin, uh, anti-central bank, uh, is libertarian explicitly is an Austrian economist. And then I asked people like, what, what do you think? Why, why isn't the United States like this? These are, these are deeply American ideas. If you read for a new Liberty by Murray Rothbard, he makes the case that these ideas really come out of the American revolution. And, and I do believe that. So, so why isn't the United States ready? And many people were saying, well, it's because we don't have one 127% inflation right now. And, and I'm just begging people do not wait. Like, you are, you are feeling the inflation now. So I, I just urge everyone to learn about the Federal Reserve because we could, we're not immune from it. Like, like we could feel that here. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that like for years, I was always like, the inflation's going to come, guys. I'm telling you. And then when COVID hit, I was like, I'm telling you, shut down the economy, you print all these dollars, it's going to happen. Yeah. And then when it's happened, we have to take that opportunity to say, I told you so and hold those bad actors accountable. And that's that that's the thing that will actually build the, th build the next movement. Cause it was after 2008 and when the financial crisis happened that I, f I first discovered this, I these ideas, right? Because you're just running along and all of a sudden all your dreams are gone. Yeah. And those, those, uh, those bad actors were saying it was all transitory. Remember? Like mm -hmm. that was the buzzword that they were using at the time. And then eventually they're like, Oh, oops, got it wrong. You know, <laughs> I guess now, now our, now our target for inflation is 3% instead of 2% now these days. So yeah, yeah, I mean, before the pandemic happened, like you, you can look it up. It, there's a record of it. If you go to my uh, profile and you just type in inflation or federal reserve, like I, I kind of started to sound like Peter Schiff. I was saying that there was a crisis 
going to happen like months from now. And, and like, this was at a time where inflation was not in the press. Like no one was talking about it. Everyone thought it was like some conspiracy theory. And now like you just look up inflation, like all the major networks are talking about it. That's that's the number one issue. It was, it was labeled by the press as a right wing conspiracy theory. That was the talking point. It, it it was a right wing conspiracy theory and then it was transitory. And then it's just like, Oh, it's just what happens. (laughs) It'll, it'll, it'll be fixed soon. It's it's the opportunity to, to really get people into a deeper thing that they, they miss out on, right? They just use money. They don't know where money comes from. They don't know why money exists. It's just the thing we do. Right. So, take that opportunity. And then we have, you know, of course, libertarians are now criticizing him for advancing dollarization, which is an interesting component of that, right? Where they're saying, but this isn't anti-central bank. You're just moving the central bank to America. Yeah. Well, I mean, a a lot of people are presenting it as if he's like a puppet of the federal reserve. And I'm not entirely sure how that would work, but the the argument that I've heard from uh, people from Argentina who are commenting underneath my posts, um, they're basically saying like, uh, and, and I think Javier Malayas actually admitted this um, in an interview. He he talked about dollarization, and he just said that it's an instrument to get rid of the central bank of Argentina. And and the way I've heard it is, there's two different ways you can dollarize. You can do it either through force, or you can do it in a voluntary way, or a mix of both. Mm-hmm. You can make it voluntary at, at the beginning, where where you just say there's competition of money, flee to whatever you want, and then. The, the argument is, well, people will go to dollars because, I mean, that, that is stable. a stronger currency. It's well, more yeah. stable on the world stage. You could either have 120% or 6% right. inflation or 5%, 3% inflation. Exactly. So right. so the argument is that he's going to make it voluntary. People are going to flock to dollars. And then, um, yeah, that's how they would dollarize. And then maybe over time, then they would force force it on people. But uh, from what I've heard, he, he wants uh, free banking. He wants competitive currency. Um, he, he appears to be thoroughly Austrian and, and libertarian. I, I think, I mean, obviously there, there's questions about whether dollarization would be best for the country, especially like they probably have to take out loans from the IMF um, since they are in debt. They've defaulted on their debt like 10 times to mm-hmm. the IMF. So there are legitimate questions, but there's also an aspect where since they're not printing the money in Argentina anymore, um, I've heard it argued that they're actually insulated from booms and busts because mm-hmm. if, if they start to accept dollars over time, like there is kind of an economy with dollars that stays fixed as long as they're not taking in more. Mm. Um, I'm, I don't know the arguments behind it, but uh, it is interesting. Do you want to slow and want us to slow down on free banking and define that now? Or do you want to, or should we head on? Um, I would like to actually know kind of, well, what some of the criticism against him are personally. Yeah, so the obviously some. the mainstream press has defined him as far right, which is interesting, right? Because that that just provokes what do we mean by left and right, right? And that's correct. Uh, left and right, where do those words come from, and why do we use that far right to describe someone who who is an anarchist? Yeah, I mean, I've said, and uh, so I've interviewed uh, Gerard Casey about this. He's a libertarian philosopher. He he wrote some great books on libertarian philosophy. He's he lives in Ireland right now, and I, I love the guy. He's extremely charismatic. I highly recommend everyone check out his work um, in my interview with him. But the way he describes it is that libertarianism is neither left nor right. It, and, and the way that I like to think of it is that it's a it's a very narrow legal theory. So there's, there's thick libertarianism, and then there's thin libertarianism. Um, thin libertarianism would just say, you follow the NAP, the non-aggression principle. Um, it's a question about when force is legitimate. Um, and the answer to it is force is only legitimate when you use it in defense. Um, it, it, 
it libertarianism opposes all aggression which is uh, of course force that is not in in defense um so anything outside of that libertarianism has nothing to speak on um libertarianism does not speak on an individual's morality it just speaks on this very very narrow legal question i think that that's how i like to position it um so that means that libertarianism is neither left nor right but individual libertarians can be left or right so i'm i'm a conservative libertarian but on libertarian matters on legal matters i will always go to libertarianism that will libertarianism will always provide the answer for me in legal questions but in my personal life you know on questions about drug use on on questions about religion libertarianism has nothing to say about that um it, it'll have to come from elsewhere in in my opinion so is that where critics are calling him far right is that you know he's made some statements that are generally anti-woke and he's against that sort of you know leftist agenda is that kind of where they're deriving that criticism from i, I would assume so but also like it's it's not really clear what far right means it, it, it seems like they never define it because hitler's far right but also ancaps are far right apparently like how which are how, completely opposite yeah, really. how can you compare <laughs> yeah. That? Yeah. yeah so the the, uh, the seating arrangements of the post-revolutionary france is maybe a bad model yep yeah, that is exactly right. For that bifurcation, all politics. That bifurcation okay, is right. how it's we ridiculous. completely. That's where the idea our, comes from. You're going to have to explain what that. Okay, means. so after the revolution, uh, the glorious revolution, not the glorious, that's, that's England, uh, the French Revolution. After the French Revolution, um, they had a singing arrangement in the new parliament, and the monarchists were on the right, and the liberals were on the left. Like the the more revolutionaries were on the left. That's it. That's where it comes from. Does monarchists describe republicans? not contemporary republicans no not in any way so what does right wing mean what does left wing mean left wing in this case meant okay so imagine go to joe biden and say joe biden you're a lefty so your position is to hang the last politician with the entrails of the last priest that was the left wing of france in the revolutionary era Right. It was anti-religion. It was anti-government in this very interesting way. It was like it was like it was a radical, radical philosophy of those things. So nothing in what we do today makes any sense for that. So we use these terms without really defining them. And we don't even know where they come from. Ben, did you know where those come from? That, that were right I and left came no from? no idea. Yeah. So that idea... We, we have we have someone to, to like bounce these off of now i love this these are our norm, <laughs> normie focus group <laughs> thank you <Yeah. laughs> thank you brother um so when i think about it i tend to think about it not in left right what i tend to think about it is i think directions don't make a lot of sense what i tend to do is just just think in terms of theses of values right so libertarians hold a couple different values uh, non-aggression principle i i Maybe I'm a thick libertarian in that sense. I, I think that's actually encompassed a couple different values that I think are as objectively true as the non-aggression principle, like the value of mutual benefit, right? Or uh, the um, the need for openness in a society for to technologically progress and like ideas like that that are really important when it comes to balancing out political interests and thinking through like what ought we do, not just what shouldn't we do, but yeah. what ought we do. Um, and on so that, on that point, really quick. Yeah. Um, I do think there is a, a big difference there because if, if you if you put uh, the non-aggression principle first, then you would say like, whereas you might say uh, we should pursue outcomes that are mutually beneficial and stuff like that. I th I think that uh, someone who is is a thin libertarian would just say 
as long as behavior is voluntary, it doesn't yep. matter what the outcomes are. Right. So, so like a society that voluntarily chose to not allow immigration, which we know is not the best for economic outcomes, that would still be okay, according to thin libertarianism, because they're, they're just agreeing to like this voluntary community has right. agreed that they're not going to let anyone in. Yeah. It's just, it's just that problem of aggregates, right? You're being a collectivist yep. when you say the, the community decided, right? Right. <laughs> right? Cause and, as soon as you do that, you're no longer, you're no longer using the nap, right? Exactly. So, so I like the nap in your premise. I actually do think that that that's kind of the split because, um, there are like Adam Thune has been on the podcast and, and he kind of seems to be more collectivist and localist, but he still has some, libertarian principles i would say he he oh, might yeah. he might reject that but i think i think he is libertarian we're gonna, oh, we're gonna hear about that in the discord it, yeah, in his sure. it is order of operations he's a he's a libertarian on the federal level right yep. he's a he's a, a communitarian on the local level yeah. like would be the way to think about him i think i think you'd agree with me so um anyways we're getting to the, some weeds here but I, <laughs> yeah, that's cool that's my point on left right is like yeah. it, it for for example like an, an example where progressives Progressives would say, whoever is the oppressor, oppression is bad. In that sense, libertarians agree with progressives, right? Because the ordering of, of oppressor oppressed, like that value set fits totally well with what we would think is like a tyranny, right? If, you, if the government was saying, hey, you can't get married to that person. They're the wrong skin color. You'd be like, that's bullshit, right? That idea is this, it, like that, that crosses these boundaries. And that's the sense in which it violates a left-right it, it depends on the progressives though too because like progressives have their own spectrum of nonsense that also sure, <laughs> that sure. also occurs right. right that's why i tend to think um, about it, is value sets yeah. right well no, it's, it's, it's one of those things where like these definitions that at, at the end of the day we're kind of at war about definitions on a lot of things because like we can say the progressives believe one thing but it's like okay the hillary clinton progressives are like the aoc progressives because those aren't the same thing <laughs> right, right? Well, but I, in the same way that the right versus left on american politics exists it's like it's kind it kind of helps categorize it but it's very imperfect it doesn't really work that well right um, let, me, let me give you example if, if you look at on a policy basis fascism and progressivism are far closer together in the mm -hmm. roots of their philosophy than any other two political theories in america right the 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 basis of modern conservatism is liberal economics of laissez-faire like friedrich hayek and milton friedman stuff like that and like a communitarian approach to family and things like that that's the best way i could try to put it right that conservative like fusionist philosophy of, of jamming those two things together neither have any roots at all in the progressive movement which was america's branch of the national socialist movement of europe which turned into both the fascists of italy as well as you know the nazis they were, they were bringing over germans and italians over to help flesh out the philosophy yeah, right, yeah at yeah, the time yeah. right and, and so like i'm a great book on this you check it out it's called liberal fascism by jonah goldberg jonah goldberg has lost his mind on israel and stuff like that but he's an excellent uh, political philosopher on the history of progressivism definitely worth checking out mostly because the resources in that book are very good yeah. Go ahead. Also, I would say just a, a funny source for how similar uh, Nazis and uh, progressives are would be Ryan Long's video with Danny Polishek, <laughs> right? The woke guy and the racist agreeing on yeah, everything yeah. and becoming best friends, basically, right? I think for, for people who are still kind of like stuck on uh, thinking of spectrums and, and directions, I think something that was really helpful for me um, before I even became a libertarian, I, I discovered Matt Kibbe's series on on Brave back in the day. And he, he talked about it as it's actually a spectrum from authoritarianism to libertarianism. And like the more authoritarian you get, of course, you're gonna have more variation because you can have like a lot of different kinds. You can have Hitler or, or you can have Stalin, but they're similar in that they like 
they use force. Whereas if, if you actually go more toward libertarianism, you start to agree on the legal questions. You might have differences on the personal views, like whether you're a conservative or, or a liberal in, in your personal life or you're Catholic or you're an atheist. But like on legal questions specifically, you come to a point where you disagree that no force is legitimate. No, no aggression is legitimate. I've heard it described very similarly to that in that uh, Republicans, contemporary Republicans might use authoritarian tactics to impress upon you the way they think you should live your private life. Whereas, you know, uh, contemporary Democrats or liberals might use um, authoritarian tactics to require you to, you know, use your money in a certain way that they want you to do. Right. So they're both employing authoritarianism to make you live your life in a certain way. So if you want to avoid that, you know, you can really just kind of dial it in to to libertarianism and, and, and make that consistent yeah. across all parts of your life. Right? The best, the best articulation is what is politics, right? Politics is when is it just to use force? Right. And if you, and if you put that on a scale, that's an, that's a more objective scale than left, right. And if you're going to make right mean, you know, the further right you go, the more anarchist, then we're on board, right? This guy qualifies. He's an anarcho capitalist, but they also put fascists on the far right. So that, that's where it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And that's where they actually make up history for fascism, such as they start saying, oh, they were capitalists and oh, they were pro-family and they had family stuff. So that, therefore, anyone who says anything about pro-family is therefore fascist. Like it, it, it actually, we, we put our, our mental model of the left-right spectrum in the driver's seat to drive our philosophy rather than things that actually matter in philosophy. Like what values are we talking about? What principles are we operating on? things like that and what were the actual policies of the fascists or of the communists or of the different uh, the laissez-faire liberals or the Whigs? you know does that make sense so it's not it isn't it, it, when you put the a mental model in place of the principle you drive strange directions that's that's my point mm. yeah and i think on, on the point of just left and right being undefinable like we've experienced this just in the last couple of months um like just a few months ago, we were identifying more with the right wing on on the issue of Ukraine. Mm. And as soon as this war popped off in in Israel, it's like now we sound like leftists to those right wingers. And and depending a, on the right winger, depending too. on the right winger, <laughs> right. yeah. So there, there's actually a really good article by by Rothbard. I recommend um, it's Confessions of a Right Wing Liberal, and and he describes how. Uh, right and left aren't very helpful if over time if you stay in the exact same place you can be identified as either right Mm. or left and Mm -hmm. and this was i I believe in the 90s he he was uh he he thought that he should identify more with the right wing um and he he came from the american right the old right uh but then uh he he started to identify more with the anti-war left over time Mm mm-hmm well, and, and that's and that's because the right wing changed during that time yeah. period too, right? Like you, you end up having the National Review right wing, and uh, like the Buckleys of the world, kind of really starting to push the Cold War narrative and shifting the right wing's mentality on, on things like foreign policy. Like the right wing didn't used to be that way. The right wing used to be actually quite anti-war, and then they shifted during yep. the Cold War time. The other one is the criticism from the right. Well, more like praise from the right. That, that's kind of strange, right? Because in this kind of teases at the same issue. We got a guy who's up there talking about Spooner. And we have a, uh, do you want to play the clip here on Spooner? Uh, where he, this, this uh, book, it's uh, Vices Are Not Crimes. Yeah, so this this was like the first thing that I discovered from Lysander Spooner. I highly recommend reading everything that Spooner wrote. He was a um, radical abolitionist during the Civil War era who actually inspired um, Frederick Douglass. And and a lot of people think that uh, he he actually inspired Harper's Ferry. Hmm. Um, so he, he was extremely radical. Uh, he, he was 
opposed the fugitive fugitive slave act and then the civil war actually radicalized him and he became an anarchist uh libertarian anarchist. didn't he also try to start his own post office he and did. didn't he didn't he end up getting like arrested because of this <laughs> yeah, at one point yeah. the federal government <laughs> shut it down yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he also practiced law without a law degree which i absolutely adore yeah <laughs> so it's great and we'll have a link in the show notes about this video um it is basically articulates the the case that because they're not in an he's not in a anarchist situation an anarcho-capitalist situation because they have a state and because they have a welfare state in a healthcare dominated single payer healthcare welfare state uh that there is a free rider problem and that there's a public expense problem for drug legalization while he holds the values of that every individual has a right to do with their body that they want that the because you can then rely on the state to bail you out of that situation if you over overdose or you do something that you don't want to do or you regret it or whatever that other people have to pay for it so therefore he's kind of ordering his values and his and his marches while he's saying but i'm still my driving prescription is the state shouldn't be doing these things and individuals are sovereign it's a very elegant argument mm. yeah and i think something helpful just for the previous conversation too about what the non-aggression principle is about uh the the book that he's recommending in this clip vices are not crimes uh is extremely helpful at, at explaining this uh spooner spooner presents the following framework he says vices are those acts by which a man harms himself or his property whereas crimes are those acts by which one man harms the person or property of another and vices the very essence of crime that is the design to injure the person or property of another is wanting unless this clear distinction between vices and crimes to be made and recognized by the laws there can be no such thing as individual right liberty or property no such thing as the right of one man to the, to the control of his own person and property so in this book i mean and and malay is basically making the argument that you have an individual property right to use drugs regardless of your personal views on them the law has no say over vice and and that's what i find so fascinating about the the right-wing reaction in malay is um we we immediately saw people like ben shapiro say that this is an awesome reaction or this is awesome news that malay was elected and you have people in montana gop politics saying the same thing um and and in his podcast in ben shapiro's podcast he he's he spent like 10 minutes on on malay and in the beginning he goes well he's not really a libertarian because he has some weird conservative views on on drug use but you just heard it. His, his view is that <laughs> vices are not crimes. <laughs> I yeah. love it. A libertarian that can actually convince conservatives that he's not a libertarian. That's some serious <laughs> Jedi awesome. shit. Well, and it's also, it's also like a, it's a ally of convenience for the conservatives of America too, right? Mm-hmm. So you have 20 years of the super socialist party being in charge and they have some change in direction in South America. It's a good thing. I think that's largely how they're seeing it, even if I'm sure they disagree with the well, things. To that, I have a question. I mean, what is this potentially going to mean? What could this mean for the rest of South America or for the United States? Is this uh, marking a shift in South American politics in some way, a meaningful shift? I, I've long believed that we are going to start to see some massive... Um, kind of uprising happen in both Central and South America. Um, I also think we're going to see it in, in other third world environments too. Uh, and I think a lot of it is just that a lot of these countries are going to start, are going to kind of like jump over the industrial revolution that we've had or not, not the industrial revolution, but just kind of like the large development. They can kind of like cut out all the nonsense that we've had to deal with, but also take on the benefits that we've, you know, we've gained. And I think that we're going to start to move a lot of these countries. Like, you know, we've mentioned on the show before Bukele and El Salvador, it's kind of the same thing. He got, he got elected a few years back through a populist up, like third party uprising as well. And he's very well liked there, despite the IMF propaganda against him. Um, 
I think that we're going to start to see this stuff happening more and more. And we've already had it in places like Peru. Peru is actually quite thriving um, and probably the most thriving GDP wise in in South America. Um, We had it with Bolsonaro in a sense. He was a very Trump-like figure in Brazil that came in and started canning all of the corrupt politicians. And then he then he got gutted <laughs> afterwards. But uh, like I think we're going to start to see these kind of these pockets yeah. starting to arise. And, and upsides and downsides. None of those are endorsements of those folks. Like they, they have good policies and bad policies and it's all mixed bags. It's all politics. Well, and classic Americans are going to try to put like very Americanized values on the situations that are going on in those places. Like I see a lot of criticism towards Bolsonaro, um, towards Bukele and El Salvador, and then also Mille without, with people not really fully grasping all the dynamics that are actually in play these in these places because like there are like straight up civil wars going on in some of these countries with gangs you know it's not like state on state violence or anything like that but it's like massive war problems and then i end up seeing a lot of like right wingers or or libertarians basically saying that like these people shouldn't be handling the problem the way that they're handling it it's just like i don't know man (laughs) like like these are very complicated situations in these countries right now with people with very little like you know just with the that just stumbled into executive power uh, in these the the two major criticisms from from libertarian libertarians i think is that he's going to be tough on crime uh with like yeah. the gang problems and then also that he's uh supposedly in in favor of uh ukraine and israel and that he's kind of appealing to the west but again like the context matters argentina is not the united states if if malay was running in the united states and he was pro israel and 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 pro ukraine obviously i'd have some problems but He's now the president of Argentina, which I think the only foreign policy consideration they really have is whether they're going to be sanctioned by the United States. So, <laughs> so like I think that he he's probably playing along to get yeah. along, and and also like if like let's say that that Malay was run, running in the United States and his biggest issue was central banking and he wanted to get rid of the Fed, but then he was also saying, oh, I'm pro Ukraine, pro Israel. I might still vote for that guy because central banking props up all these wars. It props up the welfare program, sending foreign aid to all of these countries. So, so if he if he wasn't smart enough to to realize that central banking is is what's fueling the empire, you know, I might vote for him anyway. I for sure. agree with that. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's like a you have to order, you have to have an ordering of your values and what you care about, especially in politics, right? If you're if you're more interested in domestic issues, you might just like say what you need to say on on the, on foreign policy, and I and that's that's the kind of uncharitable pick here of the whole thing. And you know, whatever whatever is going to happen there, I I, I think it's going to be complicated. One of the questions is constantly: Are we overemphasizing his victory, or over celebrating it, because? If he fails, then it looks like the whole philosophy has failed, and that's always the fear, right? And it, it, you know, how 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 should we think about when do we actually lean into the moment and say, "Yay, this is a good thing." I'm going to go ahead and jump in here and say no, because we know libertarians have a hard time celebrating wins. <laughs> no, libertarians are too busy talking about how he's uh, like a CIA op, you know, like that. Like that's what's happening. Exactly. Here. The, the, the funniest lean into this one. The funniest thing about that narrative is if if we're at a point where the CIA is propping up people who are quoting Spooner and Rothbard, I think I think we're we're yeah, heading like, in the right direction. Like then I, I guess I'm pro CIA. Then I guess I don't know. like like it if, is confusing. If we've gotten to a point where that in order to propagandize us they they need to adopt our talking points then great i mean we've Not we've bad. adopted we've adopted one i think we're maybe converting <laughs> it in the process. yeah and then like it, it, do we own everything if it fails well this is exactly the problem that always happens with with conservatives and republicans in america is like they, they will advance something they'll they'll pass the tax cuts and jobs act 
and they they'll own that for about three months and then if any problem happens they'll be like well i don't know there were problems from the beginning i objected to so they don't defend anything they yeah. never like stand on what they believe in and like articulate why they're right right and this is just it's just a while you will see the democrats and the left do that almost over everything no matter what if there's someone else from their side that did a thing they will defend it to the day they die you need good storytellers you need people that shape the narrative correctly you need people that do that well which he doesn't have and so often people on the right we're doing it yeah (laughs) (laughs) so so often people on the right or the libertarian types like they don't have that and then they're then they revert to operating within the frame that has been presented to them by the left yes and you we have to we have to be frame creators not frame like awkward frame defenders that is imposed on us by our enemies right yeah and and like i said in the beginning i i really do not think we can overemphasize how cool it is that like a libertarian was elected a leader of of um of country by being uncompromising in their beliefs right like in the united states the closest we ever get to this is like uh who's the guy in arizona who's running um masters yeah blake Uh, yeah blake masters he wrote for lou rockwell he used to identify as an anarchist he used to identify as a libertarian but in order to be effective you can tell he's changing his messaging he just released a podcast in favor of the war on terror basically Hmm. like he's saying that we need to go to war with islam again because islam is opposed to the west and it's like like when we have libertarians in the united states besides massey like they tend to water down their message if they want to get elected mm-hmm. Rand paul i mean he's he's nothing like his father in messaging he he kind of talks about conservatism and stuff like that mm-hmm. he he's not a true libertarian this guy identifies as an anarchist and he was elected the uh, the president of argentina in public in public yeah and, yeah. and he was able to convince uh, to, to your question about um argentina politics as a whole he was able to convince young population of this he was very popular with younger generations which is just incredible and i think it just goes to show that that these ideas can be popular and unfortunately i think um it'll take a crisis in the united states and and it just goes to my warning in the beginning i i do not think we should wait until we have 127 percent inflation in the united states additionally what, what you need in a crisis you need someone with a platform to articulate it at the right time the right place with the right amount of proficiency Right. It's not enough just to have all the good ideas during the crisis. You have to be in the room. Right. So that's where it's like you don't wait until there's a crisis. Crisis. You start articulating now. Start practicing your articulation now. You start gaining the skills and the contacts and the ability to actually get out the message at the right time so that you can save the country and, and change, change the direction of it. And I think I think we need to be the first, though, though I said that we, we can't overemphasize this. We need to be the first to criticize him if he ends up uh, failing on these policies, if he ends up being a dictator. We need to criticize him as libertarians and say he is not a libertarian. But right now we can celebrate because the ideas are bigger than the man himself mm-hmm. and our ideas won. Well, and, and one of the things and kind of what led into a lot of this, too, is like if he's successful and what are some of the reasons as to why he would not be successful? Right. Because like I don't think any of us fully really grasp exactly how Argentine pol- politics are and like how their parliament separates from the executive branch. Like it's mm. not like our form of government, but it's similar. Right. Mm. So like right now he has control over the executive branch right now, but like how much support does he need from parliament in Argentina right. to be a- act, be able to actually get a lot of these things through. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's, and that's really where it's at. It's like, imagine if, if in 20, 2008, Ron Paul succeeded in the Republican primary and then beat Barack Obama, no matter how absurd that looks. <laughs> if that would have happened, how, how successful would have been as president? He would have done a lot of stuff with the executive branch, but he couldn't end the fed because he needed Congress to change 
the code to end the Fed. Um, he might have pulled back troops around the world. Argentina doesn't have that problem. They're not a global empire. So it, it's just like what he's going to be able to do. I think it's going to be, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to watch what happens. The El Salvador situation, for example, Bitcoining their economy was what got all the coverage until the narrative flipped. And now it's just all about the incarceration, right? Mm-hmm. On the other side of that coin is the lack of violent crime in El Salvador all of a yeah. sudden too, right? So like those sorts of narratives, you need you need like that global infrastructure to like hold together a message about that and like interpreting what's important and kind of bringing that to the forefront. Well, and, and at the time that was when crypto was in the crux of a bull market, right? Too. Right. So like it was very trendy to, to be talking about that stuff. So it did capture a lot of attention because you had Bukele being like, we're going to have, we're going to be mining Bitcoin with volcanoes and stuff, right? You know, <laughs> like that was the was, stuff that was going and, was and, cool. and he was getting on a stage and being like, we're creating Bitcoin city, like, and they're naming a city Bitcoin and they're creating this like tech landscape for it and yeah. with all this freedom and stuff. Right. So like, uh, like, but that is an example of capturing a narrative where it's at right there. And then obviously everybody's going to be like crypto goes down and everybody's going to be like, oh, Bukele, look at El Salvador now. But yeah. like, you know, there'll be a bull market again and he'll be able to capture that again. And it's going to help them at the time, you know, like and we'll, we'll end up seeing because I'll be curious to see where where Mile ends up uh, standing on some of these things on like and like kind of modernizing their economy and some of mm-hmm. their financial networks and things like that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when the next kind of big rollout comes along with some of these things. Sure. The IMF put out propaganda to explain to the plebs what inflation is. They didn't mention the money supply. I wonder why. The Biden administration bypassed 26 federal laws to build additional border wall in South Texas. Somehow they still managed to blame Republicans for this horribly racist act. A Pentagon official was charged by federal authorities with promoting and furthering an illegal dogfighting ring in Maryland. The Republican caucus did not appreciate the characterization. For all these stories and more, join the Discord. To let us know what we should cover in the next episode of Human Reaction. So do you want to talk about Israel Hamas? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. Ah, let's talk about OpenAI and Sam, Alt- Sam Altman. Yeah, speaking of modern economy, we got some, we got some shakeups in the... The tech world. I just love how Kyle summarized the story, which is effectively the Unabomber took over OpenAI and Microsoft saved everyone important. They gave it's him a like, life raft, it's basically. Like a, it's like a perfect. <laughs> that is what my notes say. It's so good. I mean, it's like it like it gets you everything you need to know. So I okay, first factions of AI, right? And we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's a helpful reminder about what are the different factions and mental models about those factions. Kyle, do you want to give us a summary since you are you're our tech bro? Our, yeah. Our expert? So the kind of the tech landscape is really built up around these different cults um, in, in the same way that politics is right. Like there's different factions. Cults. Let's call them factions. It's a little, a little less charged. No, I, I think it's more appropriate to call them cults just because of how they actually are. <laughs> um, but you, you end up having you, you have these um, effectively the the effective altruist types. Um, and a lot of those kind of cross over and blend with the decelerationists, the D cells. If you see that word popping up, up around like social media, the D cell uh, means decelerationists. And it's the people that really want to slow down the progress of AI because of like a Terminator situation. And we've talked about that on the podcast before of how there are like legitimate people that want to like 
drone strike rogue data centers and things like that. Like there's these, it is a cult. Like, like I don't, dun, I don't, I don't, dun, I don't dun, there's dun. no better way to describe it. And then you end up having the people kind of the counter revolutionaries, which tend to be more in the crypto space and people that call themselves in the AI space, effective accelerationists. Hmm. These are the Mark Andreessen types. These are the Martin Shkreli types um, who we've talked about on the podcast before. So, what you end up happening here is so last Friday, literally like hours after we were done recording our previous podcast, you have Sam Sam Altman gets fired from OpenAI uh, from the board. Uh, they decided to just can him, and so Sam Altman's been very important because of you have something, just CEO of OpenAI, right? Yeah, yeah, he's Got the CEO. fired by the board. Yeah, I just want to make sure it's clear he's the yeah, the top so, dog. and and he helps start OpenAI. So OpenAI is ChatGPT. Everybody's heard of it at this point, right? Um, and he he helped start OpenAI with uh, help through funding from Elon Musk back in the day when it was a nonprofit company. So he has since taken it for profit, but his board of directors has effectively fired him um, in that. And then kind of the the kind of the storyline after this is you end up having most of the employee or a lot of the employees there all saying that they're going to leave too if he's not reinstated. So the board came in and was like, hey, we want to hire this Mira woman and bring her in. And they're like, we're leaving if, if, if Sam doesn't come back. And so they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to rehire Sam. We're going to bring him back on. And then, uh, and then Sunday night, or I guess Monday morning at like 1am, I was up watching this stuff in, in Twitter spaces when this was going on, you end up having uh, Satya Nadella, um, who is the CEO of Microsoft puts out a tweet at 1am saying that they have brought on Sam uh, as the CEO of their AI division. And they're bringing on Greg Brockman, who is also a fellow founder, and then also a whole host of other people. And he is bringing, and Microsoft is bringing them on to uh, to their team, which is actually bigger than OpenAI's team. Mm. So, um, and this all happens before markets open. So within 48 hours, you end up having this incredibly baller move from Satya Nadella um, to bring on probably somebody who I wouldn't be surprised becomes the, the CEO of Microsoft after him. <laughs> wow. I just want to clarify because I, I read something about that statement being a bit of an overstatement from Satya Nadella that they hadn't actually settled on a deal. He kind of rolled it back in the morning and said, well, it's not totally final. Yeah. Is that true? Um, I don't believe it is actually 100% there yet, but it's pretty much all but within like all but like legal contracting is essentially official. It, and not to mention the the, um, the psychological effect is what's important, right? Because mm, right. it puts Microsoft in this role. It, 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 you know, makes them look like they're helping Sam, who looks like the victim in this situation. And the important thing here is that the, the reasons for the board were vague and opaque, and they were largely understood as the board is, are the people who are very afraid of AI. They're the people who are worried about Terminator. And Sam Altman is more like, a, we need to make sure AI serves humans, but he's not a decelerationist, but he's not like necessarily like an accelerationist. He's kind of, what, what do you call it? Uh, the uh, human alignment. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, and, so there's like three schools, alignment, and, decel, and not incel, <laughs> excel. <laughs> the incels, it's a whole different problem. That's a whole other problem. <laughs> well, the new CEO of OpenAI, who they're going to be bringing on here, is his name is uh, Emmett Shear. He's the former CEO of Twitch, which mm -hmm. is like the live streaming gaming platform. Oh, that makes sense. Um, and he is a uh, hard, he's a very hardcore decelerationist. Right. Um, he was asked what his, his, his standpoint was on AI, and he said, um, if AI, if it's on a spectrum between zero of like completely pausing and 10 as like full fledged, he's a two is what he said he is. Um, okay. 
So where do you fall on this, Kyle? What's I'm your... effective accelerationist all the way. So you want He's a ten? You want AGI? I'm tomorrow. like a nine or ten. <laughs> you just want to send yeah. it and see what happens. Yeah. Have, have you followed uh, Spencer Schiff's take on this at all? No, no, I haven't. Like he he makes the argument that we are just going to like abolish uh, booms and busts with AI, uh, and Peter Schiff is just freaking out about it but oh, peter man. schiff would be yeah because yeah. <laughs> spencer's way more uh yes peter schiff the big gold bug i think a lot of people know who peter schiff is but spencer schiff is his son who is a very like very technophile like he's very tech savvy yeah super bitcoin super yeah. pro yeah. bitcoin while his dad is like super anti-bitcoin <laughs> and is entirely all just gold is the only answer yeah. where his his son is very much like bitcoin's the only answer <laughs> thanksgiving's so. gonna be awkward yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that wouldn't work though to be clear AI can't know what's inside your mind until you like give it access to that. Right? What yeah. wouldn't work? The eliminating booms and busts yeah. with AI. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Cause, cause you can't, you can't, the reason, the reason why booms and busts happen is because you can't centrally plan. You can't centrally plan because it's the internal psychology of the consumer that matters when it comes to predicting the future. And only prices can do that. Only prices can align that because it isn't designed by anybody. And I don't think it would get over the problem of like, just, uh, like, like the example of the master builder that, that Mises and Rothbard talk about that, like, like when you increase credit, you're, you're creating, um, you're actually kind of creating a hallucination effect where people are high off of high credit and they don't really understand how many saving or how much savings is in the economy so that they start to build projects that end up like taking much longer than, um, than they have the savings for. Mm -hmm. So like they, they build if you're talking about a master builder who's building a house, they end up building the framework of a house much bigger than what they can actually, they have the material to finish with. They're under like this high of, you know, high credit and, and they actually don't have the savings underneath it to complete the project. And, and the AI can't know that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because the savings fund is your, your sense of your future prosperity and the available resources being there because other people are saving, but that price doesn't exist. But can't the AI predict that's a, that's the that's always the, the question with prediction right right it can, it can i think we've we've proven with chat gdp that ai is pretty good at predicting of, of like looking at a large amount of information and then like trying to solve your needs it's like synthesizing information together right but but coming to a price there is no the information there is all the subjective preferences of all the consumers in the country and how would it know that yeah, this is this is the problem with mainstream economists, and this is actually what Javier Malay wrote about in that uh, article directed to English audiences. He he says that mainstream economists um, think of human preferences as being fixed. They assume what human preferences are over time, um, at, with like utility functions. They they try to predict what people will prefer over time, but like we can't even predict what we we will prefer in the future. Mm -hmm. Very true. Interesting. Uh, Another element too, and here's actually kind of like an interesting tie-in with Javier Malay here, um, is one of the big things about Javier Malay is talking about how how much like the left wing in Argentina just like destroys everything that they touch, right? And I, I think that this is really the throughput too with the effect of altruists and like the World Economic Forum Davos types. They're all kind of the same, you know, hodgepodge together in in this. Uh, like they just also happen to be the decelerationists, <laughs> largely the people that kind of follow that that train of philosophy is they seem to just destroy everything that they touch is the, <laughs> the effect of altruists. Like, 
Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX, we talked about this like a month ago when when he went to jail. He was an effective altruist. He was part of this camp, right? The um, the decelerationists uh, that are in this board takeover at OpenAI, this is the same type of philosophy. It's 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 you know it's the same thing where when Rogan was on. Um, when Rogan was on, uh, or sorry, when Elon was on Rogan talking about the death cults that formed in South, in um, in San Francisco, and kind of infiltrated or were part of the uprising of these social media companies and censoring everything, same same people, same mm. same philosophy, same people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the this is they seem to be going in and kind of just destroying everything, or it's the uh, Silicon Valley bank collapse, right? Right. Same people, <laughs> just happen to be all part of the same ideology. Um, all of these things, it's like they're misaligning the incentives of all these different entities that are really creating the new technologies of the future. And all of those open AI was valued at $86 billion last month. Now, after all this, that's all gone. <laughs> like, like open AI still exists, right? Yeah. But nowhere near the same valuation that it was back then oh, for sure. a month ago. And, and Sam right? Bankman, or sorry, not Sam Bankman, uh, Sam Altman was just on a huge media tour, right? Mm-hmm. So his name identification salience went way up. A lot of people know who he is now. It was just chat GDP and open AI, but now it's saying, Altman is like the, a face that people recognize and know. So that that's kind of changed a lot of the game as well. I'm curious. Skeptic in me is flagging some stuff about OpenAI being previously a nonprofit and then sort of through very nebulous means becoming a for-profit. And I don't know. The I don't know the exact around dynamics that. around how, how all that went down. If I remember right, it has to do with the about whether or not they were going to develop an open source AI tool, right? When that means that you get to see everything that goes into the AI, right? right? And that also means you get to copy it and make your own, right? right? The problem with that is, it, it, and, and that was like, according to Elon in, in one of his interviews, the reason why he was one of, one of the first starters on that, on that project was because he wanted to compete with Bezos and the other kind of high level folks involved in this space that are very much in that death cult as he sees it where it's like it and, and, and he that that I remember being more like an anti-transhumanist argument sure so where it's like or like he's he's a transhumanist and that he wants you to compete with the AI by allowing you to control computers with your brain right mm-hmm. that's that's what he, his exact his exact like, opinion is if you can't beat it join it <laughs> right 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 it, uh, but but what he's worried about is like the death clock you know AI scenario so his his idea to try to solve that was actually a really good one is open source it and allow anyone to get access to the model and then therefore you can make the AI that best suits your needs or, or, or suits a more narrow use function. Elon's biggest concern is the centralized nature of these companies yeah. and, and housing all of, the, all of this uh, technology without us not knowing what's going on with it. Right. Uh, it's much more of a centralization factor of that is his concerns right. because if you end up just having like oh, open AI and then they go to Congress and they're like yes please regulate us and then they're having like these secret agreements with with like mil- the like military contractors and things like like that's where things start to get kind of crazy and then the public has no idea what's going on right, right? and a lot of that starts to become a government problem you know from a libertarian standpoint right right uh, it, 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 so so his solution was an open source software which is very different than close right one is proprietary it's hold behind you don't get to see what how it works the other correct. one is open to the public and sam was opposed to elon in that well he no he was hired by elon and then the board overthrew elon and then they turned it all private and then started to decelerate mm-hmm. and, and it does make sense if you notice in the sense of like chat gdp's gotten really slow and kind of hard to use in the last couple of weeks 
So I don't know if that if that was really what was going on, if this is the, if that's everything to the story, but there's definitely like a problem with the tool that's happened. So I I don't know. To well, me, th- it almost seems like I mean the the question I have is is Sam Altman like jumping ship, right? Was was he really was he forced out or was he what does he want to leave? Because he can't do what he wants to do, right? I mean, and I think that's probably the case, right? If he's yeah. an accelerationist and the board are decelerationists, it will benefit him to go to Microsoft, not just because it, you know, it allows him to do what he wants to do, but it also clears up the confusion around, well, open AI, for-profit, non-profit, this or that. Like all of a sudden he's just with a corporation that wants to give him all the resources he wants to do whatever he wants. Some of this could be just like crazy corporate warfare and 8D chess from Satya Nadella over at Microsoft too, because he pulled similar tactics last year with the acquisition of Activision Blizzard, who's like the, you know, gaming company that, you know, like World of Warcraft and things like that. Um, and the Activision Blizzard got riddled with sexual harassment lawsuits, just crazy lawsuits. And like all of their products started to, like their, their stock was declining. And then Satya comes in and acquires them with a cash, with a full cash buyout of $68 billion. And, uh, now that entire gaming, like, like monopoly almost in a, in a sense, um, monopoly is not the right word, but like megalith, mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, now under Microsoft. Right. And, and, they're finalized all of that stuff's finalizing at the end of the year too and mm. the and bobby kodak who has epstein ties um <laughs> is uh is dropping uh, you know at the end of the year and all mm. this stuff right so like there could just be crazy corporate warfare that's going on and now they've acquired one of the biggest people biggest names in ai right, right. so the question is is this a good thing or not from the position of a philosophy of freedom that says what we want is ai that allows me to better solve my needs, right? What's going to produce that outcome? And does this development with Sam Altman create the conditions for that? I really don't know. Uh, I think the open source stuff is going to be the most important. And I'm interested with what uh, X is doing with Grok, with their new LLM and kind of the AI development that exists there. Um, Did you see Lex Friedman reading his his questions to Grok about Elon? No. To Grok, it's hilarious. It's great. Check out Elon on Lex Friedman podcast. Really funny. Because one of the big problems with things like ChatGPT or MidJourney, like some of the image creators and things like that, is the censorship side, which is so clearly happening like top down on them. So like I, I think the more decentralized we end up getting and the more open sourced we end up getting on these things, the better we will be off. And um, luckily that is happening in the Elon front. I, I'm not convinced that that will happen on the Microsoft front, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's just like, we're moving it from to Microsoft. <laughs> it's it's like, Microsoft, <laughs> right? Not going to be open. So nope. But Redmond, Washington will get even wealthier. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. The current Microsoft AI being is not that good. Like I'm not impressed by it. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I've never actually never used it. Have you used it? Uh, yes, I've used pretty much all of them and chat GPT is far better than everything. I have not used Grok yet. What's your favorite, Liam? I only use chat GPT. Yeah. yeah. And, and right now that's the only one really to well, use in my opinion. I also use Bard, um, which is I've Google. had trouble with Bard. It just, it, it hallucinates. It totally does. Uh, so I've, I've asked it varying questions like about, about like the Epstein or, or stuff like that. And Bard seems to produce better answers oh than, that's interesting than chat gpt yeah. interesting that's interesting because well, chat gpt is limited to the the input from like pre-september 2021 yeah. right bard has the entire 
corpus of the internet today yeah. that it can draw from, which also creates a lot of variability. Now, I'm, I'm not a tech guy. I'm, I'm wondering, so there were concerns about like supercomputers and crypto, like supercomputers solving all the mathematical problems. Um, Encryption and, and stuff. And, yeah, and basically like it would, it would get rid of the value of crypto. Is there a similar concern with AI? Um, I, I think both fall into the same dynamic and that there's going to be an arms race. Mm -hmm. Like in, in the same way, the way to almost think about it would be, so a lot of people are really are putting a lot of focus on, we have to decelerate AI when, because like, for instance, like you could ask these LLMs to, uh, how do I make a bioweapon? And it'll synthesize everything from its training data and, and put it together. And it's like, oh, here's a way you could do it, right? Um, and like all that information already existed. We just have a tool that helps synthesize it better mm. now. When And a lot of people are putting a lot of energy into like, we have to stop it from synthesizing data for for, for just random humans to be able to use. When really we should be using the, the thing to help with the defensive side of that of helping to like how do we create better computers to stop with you know like quantum you know quantum computing hacks and things like that in the future like how do we uh help use the these products to help us resist bioweapons or cyber warfare and things like like you know we should be using it as a tool to help yeah. us rather than decelerating the tool itself hmm. right and i think actually what you're more articulated is a concern over quantum computing yeah less so yeah. than on on crypto right because the um what large language models are really great at doing is going out, grabbing stuff and helping people solve intellectual needs, I guess would be the right way to say it, like how to formulate a, a press statement or something like that. Mm -hmm. Quantum computing is a much bigger fundamental shift in how computing works, right? Rather than ones and zeros, you can get zeros and ones at the same time, right? So it allows you to fundamentally double on like the base physical level of what you're able to do. There's a whole lot there that we probably <laughs> yeah. don't have the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the so, degrees to go into. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not an expert on quantum computing, but it, it's a huge, it's a huge change. If they can actually get it to, they've, it's been in development for like 30 years. I mean, it's been for, I remember, I remember reading about quantum computing in the nineties. Hmm. So I don't think it's, uh, it's always been one of those technologies, much like uh, nuclear uh, fission. That's always right around the horizon. But that said, there have been some recent developments on it that are quite interesting when it comes to actually developing useful applications of it. Well, and I, I, I view AI very much like, like I view it as like a second amendment issue really as like everyone should be able to have the right to have this because it is, it can be used as a weapon, but it can also be used as defense. So like, it, it's almost like, should everybody be able to own a nuke kind of a question? And it's like, you know, like if, if the state has it, do you let the citizens have it? Like, I actually think that's the realm of the dialogue that politically should be around the AI type of thing, yeah, right? I, I think it's, it's close to like the auto loading rifle in the current form, right? I mean, like, because it, it, the nuke is just the most extreme example, yeah, right? Yeah, like, right. And even then, like nuclear mm -hmm. technology, like nuclear, um, like power production plants are run by civilians all the time. Now they have a military oversight and stuff like that, but we give those, that technology to civilians all the time. It's just that it's that function of, and I really like uh, the Andreessen art articulation of this is we need a second amendment for AI because AI is what's going to defend you from bad AI. Hmm. So it's the yeah. good AI. And that's, that's where we need to play the Terminator 2 thing. Dun, 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 dun. Like that's the best analog here, right? In Terminator 2, the AI comes back from the future to defend you, to defend John Connor from the evil AI, right? That's how to think about well, it. Yeah, it's like the question, the framework on the political side would be, do you want to have 
an AI that everybody kind of has access to that is like completely regulated by the government? Or do you want to have your own personal AI, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That you can kind of manipulate how you want it to be. And then you could use it for your own defensive measures if you need to. I think the key question there, Kyle, is can you, especially to your, your second amendment point, can it be a right for you to have access to someone else's bank of computers that run the AI, right? To have your own AI, that's really your own AI. You mm-hmm. need to have your own compute. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. But that's, that's the problem the Biden regulations limit compute. So even if you wanted to build your own, you, you can't and up until a certain degree. And then you got to do all those reporting requirements and all this, you know, bootleg or Baptist problem. Well, screw Biden anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but he is the president and he's trying to put things into law. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. Right. right. This episode is brought to you by our friends at zesty beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. All right. So uh, last off, we got X versus Media Matters. Okay. I just want to say this. This is so delicious. <laughs> it is the best thing to happen to me since the birth of my third child. Oh, wow. This is a big one. I mean, think about it. He grew Media Matters years, has been a pain in our rear ends for years with their bad faith, terrible research. I mean, they used to, they, they, I like how you put in here watchdogs. They don't, no one uses that term anymore. If you notice, the USL called Media Matters a watchdog organization. Now they call them a research organization, right? It, it's so, I mean, it's so manipulated. It's so ridiculous. It's like the Southern Poverty Law Center being a neutral nonprofit. It's absolutely absurd. So anyways, what happened? Now that I told everybody that this is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, I guess... Should we start with the original interaction yeah, on Twitter? No, that's this is it doesn't. Yeah, you need to get into the controversy. We kind of talked about this last time a little bit. We glossed over it. Um, but yeah. So basically, this all started because of um, so th- there was a guy who rea- who tweeted and uh, commented on something saying, and this has to do a lot with everything that's going on with Israel Hamas and everything, where you have this. Oh, Okay, this is okay. It's it's zooming and everything on the background. Uh, okay. What this is, it's 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 a guy who's tweeting about an ad from the ADF, Anti Defamation yeah. League, which is an or which is a, a group. And we talked about this a bunch last time. We never defined it. The ADF is a group that to fight anti Semitism, right? So it's and they're super liberal. We did talk about their definition of racism. They put out an ad and it's two like middle class white dudes, like a father and a son. And then he's kind of confronting his son about him saying Hitler was right on the internet. Obviously his kid was being a troll and it's kind of putting like, but trolling is really hurtful and you shouldn't do that. So like you should be the good dad that hold your son accountable, which might be the right thing to do. Like you might need to hold your son in line, but this guy, that wasn't the controversial thing is this guy's response to it. Yeah. And he says, okay, Jewish communities, communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities that support flooding their countries don't exactly like them too much. You want truth said to your face. There it is. And Elon Musk responded to this, this kind of random guy. Uh, you have said the actual truth. 
And this created a massive firestorm. <laughs> um, and I guess, what, do, what does this guy actually mean with what he's saying here? Like, I think a lot of people were confused about what he was actually saying. Yeah, I think it's kind of like an echo of the same sort of dialogue that we're having on the silence is violence sort of articulation from Candace Owens from last week, which was that the people who were funding universities didn't say anything when Black Lives Matter was saying kill all white people. Now everyone's losing their minds because people are saying pro-Palestinian things and, and also saying some very hurtful things about Jews. Additionally, you know, actual anti-Semitic violence that's happening around the country that a lot of people are concerned about. Uh, and, and so this guy's kind of saying like, look, I get it, but you didn't say anything about this. And many of the people who are saying this originally were actually saying some anti-white things were Jewish. And so he's he, my criticism of this guy is he's being kind of a collectivist. He's kind of putting these people into giant groups and he's like poking at them as they're one actor when these are diverse situations going on here that only he tells a story, but I'm not sure it's a comprehensively true story. But what comes from here um, is basically Media Matters drives this massive ad pullout and you end up having. Apple, IBM, Disney, Comcast, Lionsgate Entertainment, Warner, Bro- Warner Brothers, Paramount, you know, to yeah. name a few. They pull, they do this ad pull up because Elon agreed with this guy about this point. That's well, the point. Like they, they said, they, they, they said Elon's a, 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 an anti-Semite, so therefore pull your ads. And an, another added onto it, uh, Media Matters does this research because they're, they're internet researchers, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're researchers. Um, and they do this research where they found that all of these companies, and then they go to these companies saying this, that their, their ads are being placed next to like Nazi propaganda and things like that on the, on the platform. And what then is found out later, and this is where it gets kind of juicy and why Elon Musk is, or X Corporation is suing Media Matters is because what it turns out Media Matters did is they created a bunch of brand new fresh accounts and followed all of these like bad actors and these Nazis and things like that and just refreshed over and over again until they got those ads next to them to use those ads and present them to the media companies. <laughs> and Twitter brought brought forward kind of the receipts on this showing that this happened. Wow. Wild. We everyone everyone who's been in politics for the last ten years has known Media Matters is an absolute bad faith actor. So it's so great that they got caught red handed doing some of this. D- David DC. Brock, the founder, started it in John Podesta's office. Like that's where Media wow. Matters started, yeah. and, and he was the chief of staff for Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, and they put out like, and then Elon's now suing them, and so they put out like this: "Oh, fainting cows like Elon is now threatening us." And uh, yeah, he basically came out with a pretty devastating lawsuit as well as a lot of um arguments that they are both evil as well as you know obviously liars yeah media matters says far from the free speech advocate he claims to be musk is a bully who threatens meritless lawsuits in an attempt to silence reporting that he even confirmed is accurate musk admitted that ads at issue the ads at issue ran alongside the pro-nazi content we identified if he does sue us we will win and this is them responding, leaving out the context of them creating these accounts, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Additionally, that the amount of people who are actually Nazis are so small. What are they talking about? Like, what, how many they made the pro Nazi YouTube accounts and then made the content and then 
boosted no, them. No, no, they, they did Nazis? follow like people that are legitimate uh, Nazis, but they made it. fresh accounts and yeah. followed those people so that their stuff was was uh, was you know crossing their feed, right? Yeah, okay. And and then they refreshed multiple times, and Elon Musk with the data showed that there is that there were these like multiple ad refreshes that were going on. Mm. <laughs> right? okay, so, but like the Taliban is on Twitter, like don't ads run across from Taliban content that's like talking about doing terrible things to women or something like that. I mean, like, I don't know what the Taliban actually tweets and, about. And, and what kind <laughs> of room IQ temperature person says, I see two things on my line and therefore the ad necessarily supports the thing that's also <laughs> in my, in my feed. It's yeah. like, well, who, actually, what a crazy argument is that? It's like, no, no, no. This is interesting internet trivia. Uh, that is how the pop-up ad was created. In the early internet, ads okay. were randomly run. They weren't like selected for alignment to content. Sure, sure. Um, unlike GeoCities and like those first like few, you know, internet hosting platforms. And you would have like ads for like really objectionable adult content mm-hmm. running at the top of like Ford Motor Company's website or something like that. <laughs> and they did not want that. So they yeah. created the pop-up so that the ad was very visibly separate from the content. Hmm. Well, also they have like, that's what Google AdWords and all those kinds of tools are for too, is like to make sure you get ads for the things that you care about and also- And they're much more targeted. things on the sites. And, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To I, the consumer yeah. themselves. And then additionally, like like in the space of, of, of Twitter, right? I'm sure Nazis want to buy Microsoft's windows, right? I'm, I'm just, it's just like, I don't, I'm kind of confused here. Like what, what do they expect? They're just like, we just want, we just don't want to sell anything to, to Nazi, these people. Like Nazi that, that's, would want to buy a PC. Well, <laughs> everybody He's needs a PC. Guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> everybody needs a computer. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter what your political no, They don't is. deserve banking computers. I'm sorry, Liam. I talked over you, but I was just going to say like, like who scrolling through Twitter sees an advertisement and says, Oh, well they must agree with the tweet right above it. Like, yeah. like everyone knows, like if anything, they're going to like have some shame because it's going to be some like weird sexual ad and, and it, it speaks on their preferences. Yeah, right? The ad is targeted to you, the right, viewer. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and one, uh, one of the interesting things too here is, um, uh, sorry, my notes here is that, uh, there's been a counter boycott that's formed, uh, here. And we have, <laughs> so you have a bunch of companies coming in and saying that they are going to increase their ad buys or start their ad buys on Twitter in order to support, uh, or X, you know, formerly known as, known as Twitter, um, where you have, so companies and individuals pledging ad spends on X in support of free speech in the wake of the misleading media matters hit piece. Uh, Andrew Tate has pledged <laughs> a million dollars per month. month. Um, and <laughs> top G is all right. Hey, um, one observation. <laughs> about this that's really interesting you look at Cobra Tate who's a huge Palestine supporter and very clearly very critical of Israel the Babylon Bee which is very heavily pro-Israel mm-hmm. and, and and has been and yeah, they ba- make some Babylon jokes Bee, it, let's, let's actually just lay out so, so some people that you would have heard is yeah. ba- the Babylon Bee has uh, pledged $250,000 in ad buys Tim Cast Tim Pool $250,000 uh, Benny Johnson $50,000 Censored.TV I don't know who that is $40,000 The Quartering $25,000 and it, it goes on but there's <laughs> Been more since then. I, want to know who yeah, that I don't know who donut <laughs> operator is, but he's uh, he's offered ten thousand. Well, hey, look, we're going to pledge here and now today that we are going to continue to spend eight dollars a month on our verified badge <laughs> in support of Twitter because of this. That's how based we are here at the Human Reaction Show. Um, but it, it is just interesting to watch, and it, it's more so like zooming out for a moment and seeing 
again, like sort of like how we're describing the factions in AI, but like seeing the factions on this like large scale, the internet, social media environment and seeing how this is all playing out here and mm-hmm. who's giving money. And, you know, it, it, it's just interesting to kind of see the, the, it's like, ch- like chess pieces on the board and how they're all kind of aligning with themselves on what side and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Super internet wonky stuff here for, for you guys at home who are like, who cares yeah. about any of this? Like, what, what's the relevance here? Why does this matter? What are the broader implications? The are only place on the internet right now that you can get non-filtered content, you know, on behalf of the FBI is TikTok and Twitter. Oh, that's going to that's gonna hurt a lot of right-wingers <laughs> in the gut <laughs> is that TikTok is... <laughs> but I get it. I mean, and, you know, and you got a lot of people saying, oh, they host stuff that is not critical of Hamas. And it's like, okay, I get it. And then those, that's wrong. I, you should criticize Hamas. I, or OBL. Yeah, right. We could talk about that phenomenon. But exactly that, that like that going uh, viral on TikTok. Um, can we say his name? Is it okay? Is it like... Is it like oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I was going to say, is it like Voldemort? We can't say it. <laughs> we, 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 we have to... listening in right now. Like, oh, shit. You know. Um, yeah, that, those... That is why it matters, right? Is because the internet is meant to be open. The dream of the internet was always a free place where people can connect and share ideas and talk to one another and reach audiences that you otherwise wouldn't be able to without an intermediary. And what we've discovered through the Twitter files is that the intermediary isn't meta... It's the FBI that is saying, this is your reach or you don't get to be your band now, right? That's the problem. And the only places left on this digital frontier where people like us, like Liam, people who have a message who are trying to help people integrate and, and find a philosophy or a politics of meaning to, to drive a, um, a, a, you know, truth into the media narratives that are out there and, and, and fight back against the kind of corporate and government interests out there. We only have so many channels, right? And these are, are, are two of them that really matter uh, to, to, to reaching people all over the world with a message of freedom. Yeah, Tucker Carlson came out with a video today, a, a speech. I, I don't know where he gave the speech, but it, it was about this phenomenon. And um, he, he mentioned that like Media Matters has has tried to censor information like who who built the pyramids like there was this guy who was suggesting that there was a a previous civilization that built the pyramids that there were and it's just like why why does media matters care about that is that graham hancock well i mean when his documentary came out which is non-political right mm. like he got smeared by as a as a white supremacist and things like this because he was so weird. because of suggestions that he was making about the research that he, he had done for his apocalypse now documentary right mm. i wonder if that was media matters i wouldn't be surprised yeah yeah know. like why do they care about that yeah yeah must be true good question why do they care about that must be true turning the frogs gay <laughs> and it turns out they were it was, we all know it was built by aliens guys okay so yeah. that's it for today guys that's it, for today. <laughs> that's it we all know the pyramids are built by aliens and they're turning the frogs gay and they're turning the, the aliens are turning the frogs well gay? it could be yeah we well, don't know inconclusive we don't know what's doing that we'll have to solve that problem was atrazine next time well yeah but who created atrazine Pro- probably a scientist a chemical might be a lizard person, person. You can't say, you can't say he's not. <laughs> you can't say it's a good, fair point. 
I, uh, I liked this tweet from you, Liam. <laughs> but it's it's from the it's not on what we were talking about, but it's it is on what we you know oh. it is on the Tucker Carlson clip here. <laughs> we're just gonna of, end by dunking on Ben Shapiro again. Thank just God. to yeah, I think it, it's not a bad idea to just dunk <laughs> on Ben Shapiro every now and then. You know, you, you got to put him in his place. Um, but uh, yeah, and this goes in the line with things that we were talking about last last episode is uh tucker carlson is kind of wondering about what ha- ever happened to facts don't care about your feelings from ben shapiro and it used to be our first defense you would say well in fact there was a guy who used to say facts don't care about your feelings He's changed his views on that recently but um but it, that remains true and- you should you should go to the post below this um and and look at the quote that i I included it's pretty large but i think this is actually really important um i grew up listening to ben shapiro so like 19 year old me is freaking out right now i'm really upset with ben shapiro and i should have known uh you know i listened to him on like for culture war stuff and and domestic issues and i actually think he's fairly libertarian um on on domestic issues but uh when i started to become more libertarian i i I realized he was awful on foreign policy but uh, after the las vegas shooting he said that this quote and i'll read it it says good policy is good regardless of timing bad policy is bad regardless of timing but when something horrific occurs it's in the interest of those pushing a related policy to suggest that those who oppose the policy somehow don't care about victims we heard this from gun control advocates after sandy hook after pulse after virginia tech after columbine after every mass shooting passion doesn't make policy good or worthwhile and injecting emotional accusations into the process never makes policy or the country better usually such accusations merely end with more heavy-handed government policy that doesn't actually achieve the end for which it supposedly aims so yeah just going along with the the last podcast where you guys talked about israel and hamas i think like like there's this standard that he he implements when he's talking about domestic policy but when he's talking about foreign policy i mean he was he was one of the worst immediately after the invasion I mean, he's, yeah, he like, there's no better, I, I don't know how to describe him, but he was just like ghoulish on how much he was just like, no, they should go in and kill them all. Yeah. Kind of like, that was effectively his position in the beginnings of this. Maybe he's toned it down a bit. I don't know. I don't really listen to Ben Shapiro that much, but he, he is, it's very, very um, emotionally driven. So when Tucker is in that clip that you had posted there, Liam saying like, you know, whatever happened to this guy, the facts don't care about your feelings, guys. Like he is all feelings right now. <laughs> and, and Tucker's perspective, he's not even like pro Palestine or pro Hamas or anything. He's just saying like, slow down. Like we, we should have cool heads here and, and not jump into a policy that will destroy the United States. Like, like he's just advocating against us intervention specifically against, uh, intervention in Iran, which would be devastating for the entire region and the United States. Mm-hmm. To close, do you think, uh, Tucker Carlson is a libertarian? <laughs> I don't know. I have heard that he's in contact with Dave Smith. I don't know if that's true. But if he is, that is amazing. We need that to happen. We need Dave Smith to connect with Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens, and all of these people who who seem to be libertarian but don't identify as such. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's less, I, I would think of him like he was a libertarian actually back in the days in Crossfire. Like he used to wear a bow tie and he was called like a libertarian, all that kind of stuff. And then um, he kind of became more communitarian over time. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of these things, they're kind of just words. Like we have right. to understand the landscape and where the battlefield is being drawn right now. And a lot of people try to have these 
annoying purity tests of like, is he a libertarian? Is he a perfect libertarian? Is he 80% right. libertarian? And it's like, I don't really think it matters in this yeah. in, at he, this point. Right? He's great on the most important issue of our time, which is Ukraine and this potential future war with Iran. And it's not just that he's been very good on a lot of the most important yeah. issues, right? It's not even just like the most important. While he was at like Fox News, while he was at Fox News, you can also look this up on, on my profile. Just search Tucker Carlson on my profile. He he did a segment on monetary policy where where he basically criticizes, you know, having artificial credit. It's it's incredible. I think I think he's almost there, but I, he when he interviewed Javier Malay, he introduced him as saying, "Oh, well, he's he's not uh, a libertarian in the American sense. He's <laughs> he's a libertarian in the traditional sense." And I, I I actually like I think that that's partially the Libertarian Party's fault. Actually, it's entirely the Libertarian Party's mm-hmm. fault. They have completely destroyed the image, and, and thankfully, since I've been involved, like they they've taken it over. And I I believe now we can actually say like. When you identify as libertarian, you're also identifying with the the values of the party itself, and and I'm very happy about that. That's that's such an important thing because like I resist kind of calling myself a libertarian, despite like Murray Rothbard and Hayek and all these people. Like I completely agree with them on all of these economics, but I there's a deep branding issue where the the name often lumps me in with people that I really don't like. Yep. And um and so when Tucker Carlson does that, he's not like those wacky libertarians, and you know, like yeah. I think that's a very important thing to recognize is that branding issue that does exist there. Yeah, it's just it's just one of those things that um on the big issues, you're always in this place where you're trying to find the coalition, pull that together. That's like the political interest, and that's absolutely a, a fundamental that is really really super important. The question is, and this is always the thing that's sitting in the background is, right now these are the big big important issues. They soon yeah. might not be, right? And what are those other issues and, and what does he draw on for his inspiration? So when you're asking the question, what is he? What, how do you how would you define him? That's kind of where I think about it. Like, for example, um, Millet gets in trouble on saying we should sell organs. Yep. Now that would solve problems in the organ doning donating market because it would reward people for selling them. Now, a lot of people have like a disgust like response to that. Communitarians especially do, right? They have like a sacredness to the body and to the internal parts of the body. And so by selling that, you're kind of violating that sacredness. That that underlying instinct tells you something about the direction that he's going to be. If we get that libertarian president who says, hey, we have a huge problem with kidneys and we kind of open a market for kidneys like they do in Iran, but we can't do it here in America that would solve the gap and then more people would survive their kidney cancer and people would be rewarded for it. In that case, they're going to have the wrong instinct there, right? Much like Ben Shapiro had the wrong instinct on foreign policy. Yeah. It, it's right. so on Tucker Carlson, like specifically yeah. he, um, cause there are a lot of suggestions that he might actually run for president or vice president. And <laughs> like, I, I love him when right. it comes to foreign policy, but if yeah. he were to, he, he is really wrong on, on, uh, the drug war and and he has suggested that we should go to war with mexico bomb mexico um because like if, if we are going to go to war with ukraine like that has no connection to the united states that ha- right. there's no interest but like there are people poisoning united states citizens in the united states because of these drugs and therefore we should go to war with them and right. and like I, I think exactly to your point like like people they aren't drawing from specific principles because if you actually care about the drug war, like libertarianism is the answer. Like mm-hmm. if you actually want a solution, you have to take out the cartels and the way you take out the cartels is not by bombing them like Tucker Carlson wants. It's by legalizing them because 
they're ba- by prohibiting drugs, you are you are basically subsidizing the black market, and and you're also encouraging um, the substances to be actually in in smaller subs like smaller amounts and and more dense because in order to like traffic them across the border, uh, you, you need to have them more dense mm-hmm. and and more discreet, and and that's how you're ending up with all these overdoses, and and people don't want to hear that, but if you want real solutions, you have to look at the economics of of the drug war. And I think that's exactly the problem with Tucker Carlson. It's just the problem at the time. And then what, what your values are on those problems. Yeah. So I, but I totally agree, Kyle. There, there's a, there, we're at an interesting juncture right now. Kyle? Kyle. I totally agree with Kyle. Oh, I thought you said, yeah. I thought you were talking. No, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm also, I'm like trying to, I'm trying to round the circle on what we're, our, yeah, our point here, where yeah. he's saying like, Hey, there's, there's things that are important here. And it's not necessarily that he's not pure. And I, I agree. I totally yeah. understand yeah. that. Well, it's just, I, cause I get into arguments with libertarians all the time about this yeah. stuff where they're yeah. just like, well, actually, and they yeah. get all kind of weird about thing about certain things. It was like, None of that matters in the moment. Like, yeah, like none of it sure. matters. You're just getting like, you're getting all uh, weird and twisted because of like this random thing that does not matter for the current thing that is happening. It's like, you're too abstract. Almost and I know we said we were going to close, but before we do, I just wanted to give a just shout having, out to the Libertarian Party. We're having too good of a time. So yeah. we're just going to keep going. <laughs> we're we'll never going to stop. <laughs> but, but I do want to shout out the Libertarian Party for this because they, they are emphasizing coalition. Like, like they... Uh, they had an end the war rally in Washington, D.C. with leftists. And I think coalition building yeah. is extremely important and something that the Libertarian Party has shot away from. And Angela McArdle, she she released a video um, congratulating Javier Malay when he was elected. And she's she's making an effort to reach out to these Libertarian parties in, in other countries. And uh, she's launched an Operation Warhawk removal campaign, putting up billboards all around the U.S., basically saying Democrats are Warhawks. Uh, they're Warhawks when they're in office, but they're doves when they're running mm-hmm. for office. And um, so I, I'm, I'm very happy with the direction of the Libertarian Party. And um, I think we can now say comfortably, uh, and, and the Republicans might not like this, that, that the closest people to Javier Malay in the United States are, are Libertarians. I think we can say that, that Javier, Javier Malay is a Libertarian and that uh, Libertarians like Dave Smith are, are the closest to him. Well, and there's, there's an added thing, too, is like thinking about those coalitions with that anti-war rally that happened is like using the, the, the good lefties, people like Jim, the Jimmy Doors of the world who are, um, you know, aligned with us on a lot of issues, but not on every other issue, you know, like, you know, like we understand we're, we're not the same, but we can have alliances on some of the most important issues like the war stuff or, or people like Vivek Ramaswamy running. Like he's very good on a lot of things and libertarians will disagree with him on a few things. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like we can recognize these things and we don't have to be like super heavily critical on the things that we disagree with him on in the moment. It's probably more beneficial to be in alignment with these types of people. Well, right? and, then, and when we reach out, we actually change their minds. Like in, in the video of, um, Jimmy Dore, where he's shouting out my podcast. You guys played it yeah, in the previous yeah. <laughs> episode. He's talking about Keynesianism. And he's basically saying, like, like Jimmy Dore is at a point where he's starting to recognize that Bitcoin is good, that, mm-hmm. that central banking is bad, and that, like, Keynesianism is terrible. That, that is a very good thing. And, and I think that we can attribute that to the olive branch um, from the libertarians to people like Jimmy Dore. Yeah, and we can recognize that, but also be like, okay, Jimmy Dore is a little wacky on yeah. Medicare for all, but exactly. we don't have to focus on that. Like exactly. we just don't have to, it's not useful for the, the actual movement of these things. Choosing to focus to ally with people who agree with you. That it's that simple, right? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to spit in the eye of my ally on this, uh, when, on some unrelated issue, when we're working on the issue yeah. working on. When, when I was, uh, you had talked about the defend the guard act with Adam Thune, mm-hmm. um, when he was on the podcast and, 
we, we had leftists working with us on that. Like that is huge. But most of them were, were combat vets from mm-hmm. War on Terror. Mm-hmm. And, and we had the ACLU in the room. So we had people like Chris Ingot, who's like extremely conservative. We had people like Adam Thune in, in the room. And then you had the ACLU in the room promoting the same bill. And, and uh, the sponsor of the Senate side bill, um, he, he had never had a bill where the ACLU was endorsing it. Uh, it was the first time that they had allied on a bill. Uh, so I think that it, it just, it's a testament to coalition building. I think, I think that that's kind of the role of the Libertarian Party is identifying those because the reality is we, we don't have a lot of influence, but we can kind of organize and, and try to coalesce around these issues. That's a good ending right there. really is. Well, Liam, uh, in the spirit of the season, we're very thankful for you joining us this evening. Thankful for the work that you're doing in uh, the pursuit of liberty uh, and killing it on Twitter. We're going to keep following you. Where can people find you around the internet? Yeah, so I'm at, at M-L-I-A-M McCollum, M-C-C-O-L-L-U-M on Twitter. Uh, also look up the Liam McCollum Show on all the podcatchers and YouTube. I'm also co-hosting the Decentralized Revolution podcast, which is the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus podcast. Um, and and please look up uh uh, defendtheguard.us that is also um, a movement that I'm affiliated with uh, we're trying to um, have a statewide movement where we are uh, basically saying that that states will not deploy their National Guard troops it will prohibit the governor from sending National Guard troops overseas if uh, Congress has not declared war beautiful definitely look those things up we will put them uh, in the show notes below the video uh, on behalf of David, the bald eagle of Liberty Rand, and Kyle Pudgy Penguin Mac, and Bennett Nate Bennett. <laughs> uh, my name is Joe Sheehan. I uh, really appreciate you for watching, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash humanreactionpod.